You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Jade Beer. Jade is an award-winning editor, journalist, and novelist who has worked across the UK national press for more than 20 years. More recently, she was the editor-in-chief for Condé Nast Brides. She also writes for other leading titles, including The Sunday Times Style, The Mail on Sunday's You Magazine, The Telegraph, The Tatler Weddings Guide, Glamour, Stella Magazine, and is one of The Mail on Sunday's regular fiction and nonfiction book reviewers. And her latest book, is The Last Dress from Paris, and here today to talk about that. And so much more is Jade Beer. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jade. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Gosh, I sound quite prolific. <laughs> I, well, you know, it's very <laughs> impressive from, from where I'm sitting. Um, but, uh, but I have to know, uh, Jade, um, you've had a very long career, obviously. Um, but where does your story as a writer begin? Well, I suppose I see it beginning really... Um, kind of nearer to the end. It's kind of in the corridors of Vogue House for me because that, for people that don't know, is where British Condé Nast is based, which is home to all of those kind of big magazine brands. It's Vogue, Tatler, GQ, Glamour, uh, Vanity Fair. And before I arrived at Vogue House, which was when I got my first editorship at Condé Nast Brides, I'd been working in newspapers. And it wasn't really until I switched to magazines that I finally kind of had room in my diary and my life to even think about writing a book. It just had not been on the table. You can't, I mean, certainly I couldn't work on a newspaper and commit to any sort of book deadlines. I just couldn't do it. I was sort of doing 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. on a features desk and there was just no, no room. But when I switched over to magazines, suddenly I had um, so much more time, but I also had access to people and people that I then could actually leave my desk and go and see. So other writers and designers and photographers and stylists. And it suddenly opened up this quite exciting and glamorous world that had looked nothing like my life had looked like before. So that was really, I think, when I, I felt like I made the shift over and that I could actually sit down and think, okay, is, is there kind of a book in me? Can I do it? And I, I, in the beginning, I really wasn't sure that I could because as a journalist, you're so used to being concise. And, you know, I was writing articles and features that might be 500 words, maybe a thousand words. And then getting your head around the possibility that there might be a hundred thousand words in you 
I really wasn't sure at all at the beginning that I could do it. So, you know, I kind of had some help. I, uh, there was no way I would have just embarked on that um, solo. So I, I worked with a freelance editor who really kind of held my hand through the first book. And we found a really great rhythm of working that kind of was compatible with my still pretty busy day job, but en enough that we could commit to a chapter a week. So that's all it was, two and a half thousand, three thousand words. I'd send her the chapter, she'd cover it in marks, she'd send it back to me and I'd do her marks and then on we'd go. But it gave me this great sort of structure so that, you know, 15 weeks down the line, you've got 15 chapters and actually now you can see the progress and, and it feels like it's happening. So, but yeah, I think it was, it was really not until I entered that building. Um, and then the other big thing that happened was in 2015, I, I left London, although I was still working in London, my family and I moved to the countryside and that meant for the first time ever I had three hours a day on a commuter train and that was great because I could put my headphones in, sit in the quiet carriage and just kind of beaver away on this thing that I was working on and nobody else needed to know about it. It was a very private project to begin with because I wasn't sure that it would ever reach its conclusion. So. Yeah, I, I think really in the sort of corridors of, of Vogue House was probably where it all began, I think, in terms of novel writing. Yeah. And I imagine just writing on, on the commuting train um, makes the time go by much quicker, too. Oh, it was so <laughs> joyous. I mean, you would start and, you know, that journey was an hour and a half each way. And that you, I kind of look up and wouldn't be able to believe that we were pulling into London. It was like you may as well use that time. Some people would, you know, you could see people would watch movies or you know be, they'd be on social media the whole time and I just thought oh, I've just got to use the time otherwise it will just I didn't want to arrive for my working day feeling like I hadn't already achieved something so yeah, yeah it was a really good use of the time. So with that first novel I, I imagine that's a very steep learning curve for you um, kind of working yeah. with that editor going from you know as you mentioned 500 to a thousand words to now a hundred thousand words um, yeah. What did you learn about yourself during that process of, of writing the first novel? It was really that I could do it. Um, and also the, the, the big change for me was doing something on my own, because although I was working with that editor, it's like no one else can tap the keyboard for you. You have to do it. So when you're editing a magazine, it's the most collaborative thing because you sit at your desk and you have what you hope are good ideas, but the second that process starts to happen, okay, who should we be interviewing? What should we be drilling down on? What are we gonna put on these six pages? The next thing you do is you, you kind of call in the three biggest brains on the magazine and you sit there and you have a meeting and it's so collaborative and you brainstorm and everyone's ideas come into the mix. And I'd done that for eight years on that, on that magazine. And then suddenly it's just you. So you really, in that scenario question how how good is your work how good are your ideas is is anybody going to want to read this because you completely lack that feedback you just don't you don't have that immediate resource so that was a real learning curve and I, and I just realized that I am somebody that has to have um, feedback not necessarily praise but I have to be able to, like in that first book, it was every chapter 
every single chapter I was sending and getting back. And that, that's sort of how needy I was at the beginning. By the time I got to the last dress in Paris, um, I had a new agent, I had a new publisher, and I was working with a different freelance editor. So I, I wrote half the book before I sent it to her. And then she saw the whole thing. So she only saw it twice in that time. And she was much more brutal with her feedback. But by then I was kind of ready for it. Yeah. You know, we cut the last six chapters and, and I completely reworked them, which had the first editor said that to me, that would have probably been enough for me to have thought, okay, maybe this is not my thing. Right, so right. You but... do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, I, I think it was really about building confidence for me because I felt very comfortable in the day job, but I felt like I was taking something on with novel writing that I had no experience of. So, but it was so worthwhile taking that help on. I think if I'd just done it myself without any help, I just wouldn't have had the confidence probably to do it. So, yeah, I mean, writing is an, is um, sort of long form fiction writing is uh, it's an isolated process. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a big uh, a screenwriter recently who, uh, you know, worked in, in TV and and he was telling me, you know, when you're writing for TV, you have a writer's room you know, you are bouncing ideas off of people. No one person is in charge of the story. I mean, certainly there's a showrunner who's taking care of it, but, um, and he was, he was joining me to talk about his first novel. And we were just talking about the big difference between writing for the screen and writing for, you know, long form fiction. Um, and he, he was echoing some of the, the same things that you're echoing. It's, you know, it's, it's, everything is on you. You are in charge of the story. Sure. You might have an editor giving you notes, but yeah. you're driving, you're, you're driving the train, so to speak. And, yeah you you suddenly feel very exposed actually yeah you know you feel you feel a little bit silly at the beginning I'm like oh yeah I'm writing a book <laughs> really <laughs> but yeah I think once you get into it and you're getting feedback and then you know things start to happen that's when you you can allow yourself the indulgence of thinking okay yeah maybe I I can actually do this yeah so, I was I was curious, what helped you build confidence throughout the process? Um, it was it was the readers, actually. It, at the end, I have three really good friends who are, who are very well-read and very honest. And even though they're friends, I knew they'd be quite blunt in their feedback. So the book, I mean, with The Last Dress in Paris, you go through all of those processes with your freelance editor, with your agent's marks, and then before I send it to the publisher, I send it to three friends who read it. And that is really the final hurdle for me because at that stage of the process, I'm not gonna rewrite massive sections of the book if somebody you know, says they don't like the ending or anything, but it's a really good sense check as to whether you have achieved what you set out to achieve. You know, did, you, did I actually manage to make people cry at the end of the book? Or, you know, do people feel a bit nonplussed about it? So that was quite a crucial stage of it as well. I think if you can find people that you really trust to read your work and, and you're, I wouldn't necessarily have let them read it as I was going along, but at the end, it's a really, it's a really useful thing to just have, for me anyway. The, th the thing I would love to put in place, which I haven't managed to yet, which I know some writers do, is to actually have a writing partner and um, 
that I think is something that would work really well for me. And, and, you know, maybe it's that you meet once every two weeks and you help them with kind of holes in their plot and sticky areas that they're struggling to get past and they do the same for you. I, I would love to set something up like that. So I, I may, now that this one's kind of done and I've got the first draft finished for the next book, I've got a tiny bit of breathing space. So yeah, I might, I might see if I can work that out. Yeah, also a great way to to build community and, and feel like you're part of a community. Um, yeah. You know, I know that that's important. Again, with something that is so sort of isolating kind of, you know, writing, um, yeah. uh, it is nice to feel like you're you're part of a community. I know a lot of people who have a lot of success with with things like that. And then people who, you know, prefer just to really fly solo and and just get their developmental edits back and, and um, you know, some beta readers and things like that. Um, well, tell me about The Last Dress from Paris. What can you tell me about the story? So I suppose, in essence, what it is, is a kind of diary of a secret love affair that is told through this private collection of Dior dresses. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, when the book opens, we meet a character, character called Lucille, who is celebrating her 32nd birthday. Um, it's a birthday that her mother has forgotten for the fifth year running. Um, she's really unimportant in her mother's life, but she's exceptionally close to her grandmother. And the grandmother, um, they're having a sort of birthday tea together and she gifts her a ticket to Paris and says, I want you to go, I want you to have fun, um, but actually there's a job for you to do there as well. I need you to bring back a couture Dior dress um, that I wore there in the 1950s and uh, it was lent to a really great friend of mine. She's now deceased. Please bring it home. I want to be reunited with it. And what Lucille realizes when she arrives in Paris that it is that it's not just one dress, it's several. And she traces the locations across modern day Paris where these dresses were worn in 1950s Paris. Um, and in doing that starts to unearth a whole bunch of secrets that she was completely unaware of. And then at the same time that that's happening, those chapters are interspersed with chapters from the actual 1950s Paris. And we meet Alice Ainsley, who is the wife of the British ambassador to France. And she is living, you know, kind of everybody's dream life, extremely glamorous, very wealthy. Um, of course, all is not what it seems. And those two timelines are gonna collide towards the end of the book. And that's going to really shake up who Lucille thinks she is and gonna have big repercussions for her going forward. So it was a joy to write. Obviously I had to go to Paris. Well, I mean, there's <laughs> occupational hazards in any you know industry. So I feel for you on that one. Yeah, it was tough, but um, it had to be done because I needed to make sure I find it a lot easier to write about places if I've actually stood there. So I really want to do it to do it for that reason anyway. But I needed to make sure that all the contemporary parts of Paris resonated with the um, historic ones. So I couldn't include anything in modern day Paris that hadn't, you know, that that hadn't been there. It, it, the two things, you know, because you see those two areas in both timelines. So. You know, if there was a cafe there in the 1950s, it had to still be there present day. Yeah. So, yeah, I went and did that, which was fantastic. And I kind of personally stepped out all of the locations so that I was able to stand in the church and walk around the lovely garden, whatever it was where the, the action was happening. Um, 
so yeah, I did that. I obviously read Dior's biography. I read a lot of memoirs that have been written by various models and people at the time who've spent a lot of time in Paris in the 1950s. So, and that tends to be the way that I like to work. I like to go heavy with the research to begin with so that I then end up with a very clear plan of where I'm going to go and what this is going to be. So that typically means it's a one page synopsis and then I'll, I'll expand that out to a proper chapter breakdown. So I'll know, okay, this is almost certainly going to change, but this is roughly how I see that one page extending over 30 chapters. Yeah. And then I expand on those, those little chapters as I go. So that very tight pracy becomes the kind of book in miniature by the time you get to the end, which is incredibly useful when you're then doing your edits and you've got to try and remember, okay, what chapter did that key conversation happen, happen yeah. in? So that's, that's the way I typically do it. How, how cool was it to imagine or, or maybe reimagine, you know, a post-war uh, Paris? Yeah, it was amazing. And it was very much spurred on by the exhibition I'd seen in London, um, which was the Dior Designer of Dreams exhibition. Um, that had come to London in 2019. It had been in Paris. And then they had reimagined the content for a London audience. And I was at Condé Nast at the time and my creative director had come in and said, you know, we've been invited to the press preview of it. I really think we should go. It will be really inspirational. And at this stage, I was not planning to write another book at all. And in actual fact, I really didn't have time to go that day and almost didn't. And she was kind of insistent that I should go and that I would love it. And it was incredible. It was packed in the in the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum that day. It was heaving and it was kind of stressful and hot. And you were kind of standing six deep at all the exhibits, but they had so much content there. Um, it was, I think they had about 500 exhibits in all and 200 of those were couture gangs. Yeah. And I do remember standing in there and just thinking, you know, the history is really interesting. The content is really interesting, but it's the women that would have worn these dresses that I'm most interested in. And, you know, what would they say? What would they tell me about the night that they wore these gowns? What would they you know, how were their lives altered? How, how did that dress on that evening shift things? That was the sort of thing that started to, to bubble through my mind at the time. Yeah. So that, that's really where it all started. And then I was really fortunate because a couple of writer friends were going to the south of France on a writer's retreat shortly after I'd been at that exhibition. And there was a place, there was a free place going so I said, okay, I feel like if I'm going to do this, I probably should write the first words whilst in France, that <laughs> eating croissants. <laughs> so I got myself out there and it was just a week, but it was, um, it was a really great way of just getting the first 10,000 words down. You know, no distractions, no children, no school runs, nothing else other than being in, you know, in front of the laptop and getting it done. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. What I love about that story um, is something I've heard echoed in, in so many other stories, which is you go to, to something, you know, rather, I mean, a special event, um, you know, seeing this exhibit, sneak preview, all of that. Um, but I mean, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people have gone through that exhibit, yet you walk away inspired um, to, to, to write, you know, a story based on that experience. 
Um, and it's really just, you know, I think that's that's the author's, one of the author's superpowers is following their curiosity to a point where, you know, you create something, um, you know, amazing and inspirational and that other people want to read. And it's that one experience that had you not gone um, to yeah. that event, you know, what this book may not have happened. That's no, I, kind of, I, I don't think it would have done because I would have had no impetus to have to have gone there you know there would have been no reason to have looked to Dior and the great thing about that exhibition was that they were they were really good at splicing together film content from the 1950s and the present day kind of catwalk spectacle so you would stand there in front of the screen and you would see this black and white footage um, from way back at the beginning, you know, the late 40s when those shows were first happening. And obviously they were a million miles away from what you see today. You know, it was a, they, they tended to happen in the actual boutique and it would be a tiny kind of salon show where one model would walk in and she'd go round in a circle in front of, you know, perhaps 200 people that were crammed into that space and everybody's smoking. It was all very chaotic. But the film footage then at the actual exhibition would go straight into a kind of modern day catwalk scene. So it was sort of there for the taking. You know, if you kind of stood there long enough and looked at it, it the sort of blueprint of the novel was there to see. It would just so happen that my, my mind was receptive to it on that day. Maybe it wouldn't have been on any other day, you know, but it was weird because I was busy and I was stressed and I didn't really have time to go. But something kind of clicked, I suppose. Yeah, thank goodness you did. And I kind of want to have coffee and croissants with uh, your character's grandmother. She seems like a, a pretty amazing <laughs> person with, with maybe something up her sleeve. I'm not so sure, but uh, <laughs> you know, you never know. You never know. Yeah, she's quite feisty and sort of not to be messed with, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I have to say I loved writing her. Yeah, very cool. Well, I, I do want to... Uh, um, to move on to another segment of the show where we get to know you a little bit more. Um, and uh, the first question I have for you is thinking back uh, to the time when you were a child, what were some of your favorite TV shows that you were watching when you were a kid? Well, I would say from about the age of maybe eight or nine through to um, my kind of mid-teens, I was so um, obsessed with dance. I wanted to be a professional dancer. Um, I was having hours and hours of dance training every week. Um, typically, my whole Saturday was taken up with it. And then my parents would drive me to competitions on Sundays. Their loft to this day is full of trophies that, that I sort of won through, through those years and that they've never been able to throw away in the way that parents don't. Um, so I was obsessed with fame. <laughs> I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to oh fly. Oh, my God. Hi. Yes, I would sing it for you, but then I'd lose all my listeners because I can't carry it. Oh, my God. Um, that, um, that school, to me, was the coolest place on earth. And um, everybody was so ambitious. They were always sliding across the bonnet of a car or the top of a piano. <laughs> I don't know if that... Does it exist? Does that school actually exist? It's a real, it is a real school in New York City. Absolutely. Oh, my God. I mean, to me, it was... Although it was primarily because of the dance, that's why I tuned in. But it was also that these people were so ambitious and determined to kind of get where they wanted to get no, no matter what. So I was kind of, 
I was quite inspired in a way by, you know, the determination that they all showed. I'd love to go back and watch them all over again. No, I'm and sure you I, could find them somewhere. Yeah. Well, then I kind of graduated to flash dance and all of that. That's <laughs> similar. I remember Irene Cara in the flash dance. <laughs> Oh, what a feeling, right? That was the big song from that. Oh my God, the audition scene. Uh, dun, dun. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that is memorable for a number of reasons. <laughs> Another one to rewatch in private, maybe. <laughs> That's right, when the kids aren't around. Although my kids are 20, I'm sure yeah. they've seen a lot worse. Um, yeah. I feel like my TV viewing was very wholesome, though. It was, I mean, compared to what my children watch now. Well, what do they watch? All... The Kardashians? Yeah. I feel like, well, my children are, I've got two daughters, one's eight and one's 14. No, oh, okay. And I, I mean, I don't even recognize a lot of what they watch, but it all, it's all quite aggressive and full on. Whereas I was Little House on the Prairie and Lassie and Littlest Hobo. And like, <laughs> it was all very innocent and very wholesome. And I don't know if that was a deliberate thing on my parents' part or whether that's just that was all that was available probably um, a little bit of both probably a little bit yeah. of both, i would imagine yeah yeah no my my kids we have triplets they're 20 um you know oh, they're wow. they're they're knee deep into the kardashians um oh. they like that but they also like they're watching cooking shows half the time and i'm like ah. you know what, what would be great is if you could watch these cooking shows learn something and then cook us dinner sometime because i'm sick of cooking um especially <laughs> during very- the pandemic that's a very popular one in our house. It's called, I think it's called Sugar Rush. Mm. And that's, I, that's an American show, which is kind of like a bake-off thing where you get set some ridiculous task and you've got four hours to make a bridge out of cake or <laughs> they love that. Yeah, those are neat. <laughs> well, we talked about TV and movies. How about musical artists? Who, who, were some, who were or are some of your favorite musical artists? If we were looking into your playlist, who'd we find? Uh, for me, it's like, because I'm, a child of the 80s it, it will always be Duran Duran <laughs> Spandau Ballet <laughs> um, I was obsessed with Madonna when growing up I remember she came to London in the I guess it would have been the mid 80s and she was doing a tour and I had I kept a scrapbook of all her um, newspaper coverage and you know I was just in awe of her because she was this tiny little when she had the very short blonde elfin haircut and she would run around Hyde Park with these two giant bodyguards next to her and the British press were always trying to butter her up and sending her gifts and she would always send it back with notes you know telling them in no uncertain terms what they could do with their cake and all the rest of it so loved her but I suppose it was all that um if you look at the kind of lineup for something like Live Aid yeah, that that was essentially the the music of my childhood, really. Yeah, and Bob, had, Bob um, Geldof, man, that was I. You know, just having watched the, um, remember watching the the Queen movie a couple of years ago, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh yeah. Um, just seeing how they choreographed or re-choreographed, you know, Queen's um, performance. I mean, they had a dead on. Um, yeah. That, that was amazing. But I, oh God, Live Aid was great. You too, my favorite performance at Live Aid. I have to say. Oh um, yeah. That's something else to just rewatch, isn't it? I mean, when you've got, you know, the time to do it. Um, but I, I remember there being a lot of Phil Collins played in my house. Rob Stewart. Of course. Um, my dad was obsessed with the Rolling Stones. That's why I have the name I do, because Jay Jagger. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was all of that. I, I so rarely listen to music now. Uh, I'm 
it's weird. It doesn't really factor in my life. It's such an odd thing to say because, you know, if ever I'm in church and there are hymns being sung or carols being sung, I'm so moved by it. I'm the person who's crying because, you know, it's so powerful. But I'm a massive fan of talk radio. So I spend quite a lot of time in the car taking my children to school because we're reasonably rural here. And I will always listen to talk radio rather than um, rather than music. Yeah. I think that's it's quite useful as well. I mean, if you're looking for character development and things, and there are some amazing presenters on Radio Five Live here, BBC Channel, and always I will tune into that. Yeah, no, I spend more time listening to podcasts than than music, especially when I'm exercising or in the car. Um, you know, because yeah. most of my music I've heard, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. I don't listen to anything new. So, yeah, <laughs> nothing's going to come across, uh, you know, my ears. But uh, moving on, um, how do you feel when you are staring at a blank piece of paper? You've got to, you've got to write something that day. Um, what does the blank page do to you? I find that I tend to get nervous the, the night before. If I know, okay, I'm starting that chapter tomorrow or I'm, you know, there's, there's a fresh writing task to be done. The night before I'll feel nervous about it and I'll think, what if it doesn't come? I, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I want this to go well tomorrow. So I'll be, there'll be kind of like low level worry about it, but it never, it's never a problem. You know, you open the laptop and because I plan and I structure so well before I start to write, it's like I never don't know what I'm going to be doing. So that's that's why I put all those processes in place, really. And I always make sure I write in the morning. It really does have to be at home and it has to be quiet. I never write with music on. So it's complete focus. And I remember an old boss of mine at Condé Nast who's written several books himself saying, you know, you really can't have the luxury of writer's block. That's just something that you cannot allow to, to creep in. And it's a very sort of old school approach to it, but actually that does work for me, I think. It's just that whole vibe of just get on with it. You yeah. can edit it later if you need to, but you just need to get on with it. Yeah, and I think having that that synopsis as a starting point really helps. Um, really, as you yeah. as you pointed out, really helps with that. I know many people have told me the same thing, and I think some authors think to themselves, "Oh, geez, I don't want to be handcuffed by something." And and I don't think it is handcuffs because you can you can still change the story, even though if your intention was this happens, something you know, as yeah. you're writing and developing, you, you have the yeah. freedom to make those changes. Yeah, you can be really flexible with it. And you can change it as many times as you want to, but at least if it's there, you have that kind of guide. It's a guide really than, rather than really strict parameters, but yeah. it just keeps you on track, I find. It's really, it is a useful thing to have in place. Yeah. Um, thinking, uh, going back to that first, uh, first novel, um, what, what lesson about publishing did you learn the hard way for that first novel, if any? I think it's that the writing is actually the easy bit. <laughs> that is the easiest bit of it <laughs> because everything else and I think you naively think when you come into this or at least I did um that you're going to write your book and you're going to hand it over to somebody and then everything else is going to happen around it and then oh here'll be you know phenomenal success and there's so much more to it than that obviously and and it's not until you've gone through the process that you realize 
the relentlessly kind of coming up with ideas for publicity, ways to promote it, collaborations, and even further back than that, things like getting an agent, I think is really hard. How do you make yourself stand out against so many other people that are all vying for the same people's attention? So that was incredibly hard. I had my first book was rejected by so many agents. And every time it got rejected by one, I sent it out to another. And that was the only way I could kind of mentally cope with it. Because I thought, well, I've still got irons in the fire because not everybody, not the entire world has said no to it. Um, so you just got to, you do have to be incredibly resilient, but I think you also have to realize that the writing of it is actually the beginning. There is yeah. a huge sort of beast that operates around it that you really have to get on board with. And, you know, you've got to, you have to show an interest in the business side of it. I think you've got to like every morning I read the headlines on bookseller uh, which is our kind of trade publication for the publishing industry here. And it just, you know, it's literally a three minute job. What book deals have, have come in? Who's moved where? Who's who? What's happening? Just very, very top line. Just so that I feel I have some understanding of what's going on in the world in which I now work. Very cool. And, and last up, um, if you could whisper some words of advice into sort of the, the younger Jade's ear, um, you know, what would you tell your younger self? Um, you know, just to kind of give her some advice, reassure her about something, what would you say? <laughs> I think it would be um, that there is enough success to go around. Uh, I think it's really, especially now with all the stuff that's going on, you know, with social media, every time you open your phone, somebody is celebrating some amazing successful moment. And I think it's really easy in that circumstance to think because somebody else has done incredibly well, that that is some that somehow means it's less likely that you're going to I think a lot of people feel that way and actually it's really not the case there's no you know no less chance that you're going to do well just because those three writers over there did really well so I think you just have to remember that that there is enough success to go around and it's it's yours for the taking you have to be tenacious and you, I think you have to work quite quite hard at building a network and you have to surround yourself as much as possible, whether it's digitally or in real life with people that you admire um, and that are gonna be useful to you and that you you can be useful to as well. Um, but yeah, don't think that because somebody else has been successful, that means that there's there's less to go around because I just, now I can see that is not the case. Well, there you go. Well, the book is The Last Dress from Paris. It's written by, Jade Beer, Jade, um, I imagine this is available wherever books are sold. It is. Very Correct. good. And if you have any websites or social media you want to share, I invite you to do so now. Yes. So my Instagram is Jade Beer Brides, which is obviously harking back to the Condé Nast days, or um, just jadebeer.com is my website. And most things are on there. Very good. And we will put all of that in the show notes. Uh, Jade, thank you so much for joining me on A Corking Your Story. I had a fun time on Corking Your Story. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. 